came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, Xenia. What's up? How are you? I'm good. I'm uh, excited. Excited about this episode. How are you? I'm good, but that WhatsApp of yours scared me. I thought something happened. <laughs> it was a that's just a that's a normal thing that people say. I mean, how do you even say that? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Never mind. Let's just um, uh, let let's just forget about that and start talking about the episode. <laughs> anyway, it's my favorite part of the season today because we've got audience participation episode. Yes, and, you know, I, I get super excited about this. So in the season, we talked um, with early career researchers and about the amazing research that they're doing. And so the five episodes that we had so far have been so inspiring. And I've just been learning so much. It, it, it's been great. And I've been thinking quite a lot about my own early career stage, right? When I was doing PhD, say, or just when I started doing postdoc, like first mm. couple of years of postdoc. Positionality never even crossed my mind, you know, yeah. let alone me writing papers about it. I, I'm now realizing how um, kind of normative and uncritical my work was, and no one ever, you know, told me I could do something different, you know, or mm. I, I wasn't quite engaging, I guess, in right conversations or uh, reading the right literature. So I'm, I'm just really excited that early career researchers now are doing something so different and really are challenging what all the generations have proposed, right? And I find a new way of um, doing research and engaging with research and making sure, most important, that research has positive impact on communities. Yeah, absolutely. I definitely relate to what you're saying about my early stages of getting into disaster research. And it took me took me a long time to, mm. to reflect on uh, the practices and the ways I was thinking. Um, and I think that's like, there's part of that that's just about um, being willing to be vulnerable about that, willing to be wrong, you know, and revise the things that you thought that you knew, you know. And mm. um, I think a, a lot of us, maybe it's just like a, a fear of, fear of being wrong or fear of like your, your work, previous work being like undermined. Mm -hmm. But surely that's what science is supposed to do. So I'm learning a lot from the the early career researchers that we've been talking to. And like you said, it's just um, been pretty amazing to to see how they're they're getting getting this uh, or like taking on the norms, taking on the powers, like at such an early stage of the career, even at risk to their own pro progress sometimes mm -hmm. institutionally mm -hmm. and um i'm super impressed 
So we really wanted in this episode to highlight some of the challenges that early career researchers are facing and how they work with more established researchers. So we invited today both established disaster scholars and early career researchers to answer two different questions. And hopefully a lot of you engage with this on Twitter and you saw these questions over the last month or so. And so from the established scholars, we wanted to know what's important to you as you engage with early career researchers. And from the ECRs, we asked what inspires you and what needs challenging. And we got some really interesting responses, didn't we? And um, so we're really glad to feature those responses today and have a conversation about them. Absolutely. And so, well, let's start with the mentors and established scholars and the answers that we got to, to, to that question. You know, what is important for you as you engage with early career researchers? When I saw this question about what is important to you as you engage with early career researchers, the first thing that came to my mind was related to the importance of listening. It is so important that we listen, really listen to early career researchers. Listen to their hopes for the field, listen to their personal and professional concerns, listen to their ideas, and most of all, listen to their new and novel contributions to knowledge and understanding. Early career researchers have so much to contribute, and we, the more senior or established members of the field, have so much to gain through working with, supporting, and uplifting those new to hazards and disaster research. This is the best way to ensure the growth, strength, and diversity of the field. And that is a beautiful thing. It's a matter of sharing our experiences and especially with regards to the, the challenges and the um, mistakes we uh, made in the past and, and make sure that ECRs and, and younger colleagues uh, do not repeat the same mistakes, do not face the same challenges the way we did uh, when we were younger or earlier in our career. And the second um, role I think is important um, is about opening up the space, both theoretically and institutionally, for our younger colleagues to uh, be able to avoid these mistakes and, and challenges. And this is, for example, what we're trying to do with uh, our journal, Disaster Prevention and Management, by offering some space to scholars in general publish pieces that do not necessarily stick to uh, the expectations of Western academia uh, in the way the papers are structured, in the way uh, we uh, peer review them, the way we feature them in our journal. And I think uh, this um, need to open up that space for uh, ECRs and younger scholars has to has to fall on us. Um, we have the responsibility, we have the mandate to do this and, and, and the experience somehow because we um, we have faced the challenges in the first place. So I think I think this is crucial to open up that, that institutional and theoretical space as well. It is um fundamental to establish, or try to establish a balanced partnership when we work together. Even if I'm a professor and you're a postdoc, when we work together, both our input is equally worth. 
And it's very sometimes difficult to reach that. It seems to be some sort of idea that just because I have worked longer, that I am right when we are having debates or discussions. And that's not at all the case. So I think um, to try to overcome this really tiresome hierarchy in academia, um, so we can work on, on uh, the problems at hand from an equal basis, that is something that I think is very, very important when working with younger colleagues. Engaging with early career researchers, for me, is always a source of inspiration as they bring new energy and ideas which are further powered through their savviness with new technology. Often they have the courage to challenge established ways of seeing and doing things that we, the established researchers, exhaust as we get into our comfort zone and start believing that our way is the highway. Well, as a mentor, I would rather see my role as a facilitator who can help in sharpening their brilliant ideas through my experience rather than merely transferring the established knowledge, which we all know through books and through other sources of information. I've always found this engagement an immense learning process for myself. I also believe that our role as mentors of early career researchers should be to help them connect with other young minds who are interested in similar pursuits that may enable fruitful collaborations. In fact, this will stimulate reflection and innovation that is indeed the key to scholarship. It's learning and exchanging. Science is not meant to be about personalities. It is meant to be about rigorous, verifiable explorations of and contributions to knowledge. Someone beginning in the field presents as potentially valid ideas as someone who's been in it for decades. Someone who's been in the field for decades can make as many mistakes and can improve as much as someone beginning in this field. The key is being able to exchange thoughts, present material, admit errors, and change for the better without taking it personally or getting involved in personality clashes. Our job as scientists is to alter our viewpoints and approaches based on the evidence, not to accept only evidence which matches our existing viewpoints. We are human beings. We can always learn, improve, and change. Early career and established researchers are human beings, with plenty to offer me, hoping that I could provide equivalent in return. And we all have so much to learn and improve. Thank you for being part of this field. I think these are some amazing reflections. And I love that everyone refers to dialogue and kind of altering and challenging our viewpoints, you know, and also challenging each other and learning from each other. I think this is so important that all these established scholars and the mentors and people, early career research as well, and us really look up to, right? Um, mm. and, 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 and that message of learning kind of mutual respect is, is, is just so great. And I cannot agree more. I think listening and dialogue are indeed really, really important. But in, instead, somehow in academia, we keep ending up with hierarchies, right? Which is just so, so hard um, to resist. 
And I am shameless self-promotion, but really, this is something that really resonates, I know, with you and me and mm-hmm. our friends. Um, you know, in our latest paper, the about reviewer two, mm-hmm. critique is not a verb. We kind of, we talked a lot about this, right? We talked um, a lot about this hierarchies and particularly conservatism in in a sense that there is often very little listening or willingness to debate, not because... Um, it somehow is seen as bad, right? Or people are not willing to debate, but because new ideas and challenging new ideas are seen almost like a personal offense, right? And many people um, just deal with this very kind of impatiently, right? They just dismiss anything that doesn't fit their established narrative. And it's fantastic. It's kind of it's scary to see such clickiness and kind of insider reinforcement, right? That that really is just the disciplinary conservatism. Yeah, that's really true. And I'm, it makes me think as well about um, how a lot of a lot of advisors and mentors and um, scholars who are in that position um, of of like critiquing early career researchers, um, training them um you know helping them to become more established mm. are also kind of gatekeepers and are like have there's a power d- dynamic often Absolutely. and so then it makes me think of like the, the 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 way that we gatekeep who who's uh supposed to be cited where you're supposed to, how you're supposed to frame your work how you're supposed to um like pay pay respect to everybody who came before, no matter whether they inspired you or whether you think, you know, that what they did was a bit normative. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. you're, so you're supposed to, to pay respect to the approved canon of work. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think we should, should look at that a bit more critically. And like, you can, you can be respectful to a person while, not actually being inspired by their work. And if you're not inspired by their work, if, if their work hasn't informed the position that you're at, you have got to, then why should you be writing about it in your, in your paper? Right? Just, just because, just because the, the professors demand it. Is that a good enough reason? Mm -hmm. But it, it is crazy how often that demand is there right when Mm. you haven't mentioned certain seminal works right we've had this how many times Mm -hmm. um your paper can get rejected Mm. right and frankly those guys and their guys (laughs) (laughs) i'm not being gendered here i don't think they care about citations even that anymore right it's it, it doesn't matter to them um and yet instead of being critical and instead of trying trying to introduce new ideas, we keep kind of reciting the same thing. And I think this is where dialogue is really important. And I'm so glad that, um, you know, Laurie brought it up um, and Per and JC in, in their clips. Because I, I don't think we have conversations very often as a discipline, right? And of course, we will talk about Freire again, because you and I always talk about Freire. That's, yes, we do. <laughs> we spend a lot of time talking about Freire. And I like how Freire writes that dialogue is a way of how we learn to be human. Mm. And human is what we need to be to become good academics. So wh- why aren't we engaging in 
reciprocal dialogue. Um, I, I just wonder at what point do we stop talking and listening and start just following dogmatic norms, you know, when we shape ourselves as academics? Well, it's another chance for shameless self-promotion here because we have mm-hmm. this paper about <laughs> pedagogy in, in uh, coming out, <laughs> which is related to Freire, but it's, it's relevant, okay? So it's okay. <laughs> of course. If I mention it. So, but we were talking about like the role of an educator. And I, I think there's a lot of similarity here with this conversation about mentorship because it is about that power relationship between student and teacher and that kind of dichotomy that's set up in traditional university setting mm. um, where the, the student is positioned as like deficient and like an empty vessel that the, teacher can mold, which is very, um, really conflicts with all of Freire's teaching about liberatory education. Um, and I, so I think like in terms of how early career researchers can be mentored effectively to be critical, um, I think we need to challenge some of those norms and how we um, think about power relationships within the academy more broadly. Mm-hmm. Because often, like, Often senior academics will, t- will treat early career researchers as they do their students, which is in an unhealthy way. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, that's a, that's a great um, segue to our next segment because early career researchers are actually telling us in the next few minutes what it is they think is challenging. We need to also think about different ways of doing uh, disaster research, as I already mentioned. I mean, I mean often we tend to kind of uh, give too much emphasis or even like romanticize field work, right? Like physical field work. I think it has uh, COVID. One thing uh, good that COVID has done is that it has really forced us to revisit the idea of field work, you know, doing field work remotely or engaging with other data sources. So I think that is also something we need to think more about what other alternative data sources are available, you know, uh, for the kind of, kind of answer. Do we always need field work, right? I and mean, can we answer certain questions through other? other kind of um, data sources. So that is also something where we need to um, think about. And, and finally, I guess, in terms of challenging, one thing is uh, also in terms of my substantive area of interest is um, I, I, we also need some rethinking about this whole idea of local versus global internal and kind of links to internal versus external in disaster research. But I also like in that particular, uh, I also find the use of the term local or, or local knowledge or local uh, research to be a bit, I'm afraid, a bit simplistic or quite deep political um, and even romanticizing of what local uh, really means, right? And, 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 and I think um, particularly it is, a, I find also a bit of contradiction because then we're also talking about disaster research as a political undertaking. Uh, it is a political undertaking. Then can we, uh, but do we, that, does that mean we think about local as Flawless, political, fair, equal. Uh, when we know, just you know, with years of research, particularly by critical development, critical participatory uh, scholars, um, that you know there are often power imbalances, injustices um, um, that are hidden under the guise of local. I think that disaster studies have to recognize and work with the local knowledge. 
people know a lot about the risk they have to deal with in their territories, but they usually identify them with different concepts or ideas in contrast with the concept that we use in disaster studies. So I think uh, we need to hear them and comprehend how people live and understand disasters from, from their perspective. And worse still is the belief that people with disabilities cannot do anything. This in BRR setting, they can only be, you know, as the object of rescue. I think this is something that we need to challenge. As time and time again, we found that these assumptions are simply not true. And in my most experience, most recent experience is when working with uh, the working group of organization of people with disabilities in Central Sulawesi as our co-researchers. Initially, I assumed that it would be too difficult for them to conduct interviews and having to probe for answers. But it turns out um, they're very um, skillful actually in building rapport and also ask for follow-up questions to the interviewees. So I would encourage everyone to try to leave behind their assumptions and start making that connection with people dis with disabilities and listen to them genuinely and also learn from them. Because only then we can make our BRR research and practices more inclusive. As someone who's worked in heritage, I do think that the notions of culture and cultural heritage in particular as sort of benign actors or only as assets with respect to disaster needs to be challenged. You know, uh, culture and cultural heritage by extension is important. Multiple threads of research emerging from both disaster studies and heritage studies reconfirm this. However, uh, I find that current disaster scholarship and the ways that it feeds into international frameworks and policy often tends to skim over the politics of heritage. I think this aspect needs to be unpacked more critically. And I say this as someone who's been a heritage professional, who sincerely believes in the importance of heritage and culture, uh, particularly in disaster recovery. Uh, heritage, whether it's places or whether it's traditional knowledge systems, beliefs, practices, is a deeply political process and one that can get even more politically charged through disaster. Among a couple of other things at the moment, I'm definitely thinking about how the structures of care surrounding disaster need to be challenged and sort of problematized, um, especially when we're sort of thinking around the different everyday disasters that people experience. There can be like, there's still some dryness in how things are written and kind of like falling back on certain traditions in terms of academic writing and scholarship. And I think what inspires me and what needs challenging is the efforts to improve meaningful participation of these vulnerable groups. Because humanitarian, humanitarian actors at the global and national levels, they have been talking about the needs to decolonize and localize the disaster practice and other humanitarian programming in general. But I guess there are still a lot of things to do. We have found uh, the good practices of enabling participation and active involvement of the local community and the vulnerable groups. But in my perspective, we still can do more to boost the leadership of the local actors. 
I think it's not enough to just implement a short-term project and write it in our report that we have empowered people because we still need a system that can make disaster practices become more sustainable so that the locals who are the first responders during a crisis, they can have better capacity and resources to lead the response, even if it's beyond a particular project or a partnership or any research duration. And our task uh, as international NGOs, for example, we need to support them in leading the sector. This is also the case with disaster studies. I think it would be great if somehow we can support uh, the affected uh, community and the vulnerable groups uh, to lead the research production, for example. So they can more empower themselves in telling their own voices through disaster studies. So as we listen to those incredible excerpts from um, some of the ECRs that responded to this question about what needs challenging, I think there's some some overall themes that emerge with regards to the way that we use concepts, um, which we've talked about as well in some of our work, Ksenia, about um, you know key disaster com- concepts and how they're used across different cultures and different mm-hmm. languages and the difficulties that causes. Um, there's definitely a lot of sentiment coming through about academia being an ivory tower mm-hmm. um, and being somewhat um, abstracted from the reality that people are facing. And then also about engagement, which has been a key theme, I think, in this season generally, how researchers engage with communities in an ethical way. and. Um, especially with regards to, to the traditional way of seeing, um, you know, people as subjects mm-hmm. um, and being the, the subject of the research and even object rather than people or, um, and then definitely rather than co-researchers or collaborators um, and how, how disempowering this can be and how uh, violent it can be sometimes. And so, mm. Um, and the overall thing I think that we can see here is that we need a, a politics um, as researchers to uh, to engage ethically with communities that are facing uh, disaster impacts. And that's the biggest challenge that these young researchers are um, pointing out to senior academics is that, you know, why are you making it so apolitical, right? Yeah, and it, it's a huge problem, right? In in kind of treating researchers as neutral um, and pretending that disasters are not ideological. Mm. Um, and I, I, I just feel that that actually contributes to disaster risk creation because mm-hmm. if we treat disasters as apolitical, if we treat people um, as, as just subjects or objects of research who who have no agency, right? Or even if we pre- kind of pretend to give them agency, right? And build, I use quotation marks here, mm. uh, their capacity or their resilience, you know, it still shows that we have power and they don't. And so all of that is simply reinforces um, the status quo because this is what structural oppression wants. It wants somebody to have more power than others, right? And this is, and this is what we're exercising through not challenging uh, the ideologies. Totally. Like, yeah, since we were recording right around 
um, International Women's Day, it just makes me think of the the parallel with um, like white bourgeois feminism, mm. like and the way that the way that ideologically that that um, identity approaches women in the global south who have always been fighting for liberation. Um, and they're like, well, we can give you like, we can, we can give you like bikinis and that'll be liberation for you, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of, it, 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 I wish it was an exaggeration, but it really isn't, right? Um, and, and this is precisely the point, and this is precisely the worry that we see very similar thing in, in disaster research, right? In that there isn't liberation or resistance. And I love how the early career researchers that contributed to this episode and also to the ones that we spoke, you know, and first uh, in the beginning of the season and that to other interviews that are upcoming in the season, they really question this and highlight this and kind of underline this. Um, I also, you reminded me, you know, as you were talking about International Women's Day, um, I, I love this quote. Uh, I was reading the book called Anarcha-Feminism mm -hmm. recently by Chiara Botticci. Um, and she writes, feminism doesn't mean that women should come to occupy the position of power employed by some men, which is impossible without creating other forms of exploitation. Feminism cannot be achieved by equality in privileges but only through the abolition of such privileges and the construction of non-hierarchical, non-exploitative society where no elites live by dominating the others and where all can therefore equally be free. Mm. And I love that. I love that equality in privileges phrase because I feel that this is what we very often actually reinforce if we do research that doesn't question privileges, right? That doesn't even raise the issue of privileges and that is of course very common in disasters right particularly when you don't see disaster scholarship as a political yeah no that's really good and um i think part of part of the 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 i don't know like the mechanism of control that um senior researchers sometimes use of trying to make things um apolitical is mm -hmm. is just about it's just about um maintaining power and privilege in in d the disaster field because once once they lose control of that it's it has implications for um funding has implications for like their own legacy i think a lot of people just are are driven by ego as well mm -hmm. and don't want anything that that they've done previously to be undermined just kind of disturbing that that's the way that we're working as scientists. <laughs> Indeed. But it's not all that bad, right? We, you and I tend to <laughs> rant a lot about this, but it's also been great to hear our researcher, our early career researchers, guests, uh, talking about inspiration and hope. Mm. So let's hear what inspires them. Inspired by people who draw on or tends to kind of straddle different disciplinary boundaries. 
I'm not just focused on, on in a particular interdisciplinary home, but it's going beyond that. So I think one, I really get inspired by people who can really bring this different disciplinary debate and to understand the socio-political dimensions of disaster. And that also means like also engaging, going beyond your ontological and epistemological positions. Right? So disciplinarity doesn't only mean theoretical debate, but also methodological debates. So I'm inspired by a lot of current scholarship that's emerging in disaster studies that's very critically engages engaging with ideas of risk and vulnerability, not as things that sort of exist naturally, but as conditions that are created and reinforced because of existing systems and institutions. I would say sort of disaster studies research that's come before and that has sort of challenged near enough every preconceived conception of disaster that I ever had. Um, so I guess definitely the ability of disaster studies to challenge the unequal terrains of disaster. And in that same vein, disaster studies sort of radical potential moving forward, especially when we're thinking around sort of so-called vulnerable groups. What inspires me is to investigate something useful for people I work with, uh, something useful for their communities, and to contribute something to their lives, uh, to do something more than just publish my research in a paper. I mean, that is important, but I really, uh, it really inspires me when I, I can see that my research is very useful for their, their, their own life. I became aware of my preconceptions and how these preconceptions can be a barrier for participatory research with persons with disabilities. For instance, it turns out that I still have my own idea about what persons with disabilities can or cannot do in research. I initially thought that it would be easier if they just use survey because then it would come with predetermined answers. They do not need to have probing skills, as in the interview. But then in the end, we decided to give it a try by asking our persons with disabilities co-researchers to do interviews. And it turns out they did really well. They quickly built rapport with the informants, able to break down the questions to make it easier to understand, and they were able to ask good probing questions. So, you know, going to the communities and know that there are so many smart kids and young people with so much energy who just need an opportunity to, to be here, but also to propose uh, initiatives that could be even led by themselves uh, is very amazing. That's something that motivates me a lot. So I feel like very uh, happy to know that there are many other initiatives around the world which are like having or taking into account the different communities. And in this case, uh, I think that's a, a, good, a good example for, for that. There's a lot of scholar practitioners and, and collaboration with community groups, local groups. Um, there's a lot of amazing examples and kind of, there's a lot of innovation happening, I think in the field now, in a way that we need to have be happening in academia in general, as we're talking about climate change, climate justice, and just the, the era we're living in. Um, I think it's very important that we have much more applied, um, decolonized collaborative research to address these issues. My inspiration comes from doing disaster studies for those who need the most and for those who need to be heard and seen. 
I believe that we should stop being the narrator of stories of marginalized communities' problems, because the narration of what we perceive is likely to reflect our interpretation based on an outside perspective, which can be subjective. My intention to do the disaster study is letting people be a storyteller of their own problems. If they have the opportunity to be heard, they know better than anyone else what and where the solution might be found. To this end, I believe that we need to challenge the disaster-related paradigms which portray communities as who need help and ignore the fact that marginalized communities have the knowledge to solve their problems. So those of us who have studied and worked in environments with positivist mindset need to step away from problem and solution-oriented approaches, and instead we need to grow up as anti-oppressive researchers who are looking for the subject of the research, and before conducting any disaster study for a community, ask ourselves, who says this is the problem that needs to be studied for this community? Or does problem come from inside of the community's reflection? Or is it dry from our interpretations? Taking into account and respecting other epistemologies is a big one. Uh, and understanding other epistemologies in, in this context. And what really inspires me and, and, and it's challenging too is to make space for hope and future, like not only about on suffering and what's difficult in connection to disaster, but what the people um, experiencing disaster hope for, what, uh, how they imagine their future and how we can support that uh, in the same way that we are challenging op oppressions in our research and not reinforcing them. And one big thing for me is to challenge gender binary and heteronormativity in gender studies and gender management because, and I say, I would say we have to do that because I did, I have the same limitation in my research right now, in my PhD research, but it's super important that we go beyond looking only to men and women and thinking about people as uh, straight, cis people, because it's absolutely not the reality of everyone. I love that the inspiration for so many of our contributors in this episode is in working together with academics and professionals, but also with people on the ground and with communities. Um, because it seems to me that there is a really big transformation. You know, I can I can sense this in, in, in the way that um, early career researchers are talking about disaster studies now, that there is a really big transformation towards working in kind of solidarity, right, and supporting each other. And so resisting together the established concepts of vulnerability and disaster. So everything that we've just been talking about 10 minutes ago. And it's just wonderful. It, it inspires me and it really gives me um, so much happiness that we are talking about inspiration. You know, we are talking about positive transformation. Um, and of course, hope also features prominently. I, like, I think one of the things that we don't talk about enough in our field is the role of capitalism, right? And mm -hmm. when we talk about mm -hmm. production of vulnerability, um, like that's so intimately linked to racial capitalism 
And um, you know how it's a system of separating people and those who deserve to have a, a good life and those who don't deserve it. Yeah. It's like who is clean and who is dirty. If you think about yeah. about like what we were talking about previously, um, about um, you know keeping cities clean and mm-hmm. caring for people and all of these, uh, all of this uh, gendered work and racialized work, um, and that's what capitalism does and and requires. And so, like if we don't bring that into the conversation about vulnerability and disaster. Uh, studies i think we're making a huge ideological claim which is that that doesn't matter (laughs) and i think that's that's incredible that disaster studies uh researchers would actually make that claim um of course they'll pose that as as a neutral position but it's anything but neutral and so Mm -hmm. like what gives me hope about all of this is that people are resisting it people are um, articulating arguments that dismantle that claim, looking at vulnerability in more nuanced ways, looking at the, the, uh, strength and, uh, and capacity and, um, knowledge that people who are, who are facing gendered and racialized, uh, systems of violence, um, are like have been displaying all the time and mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and are, are trying to come alongside and act in solidarity rather than with humanitarian impulse. So that gives yes. me so much hope, right? Absolutely. And, I, you know, I, I absolutely agree with you. And what inspires me in, in the work that we've been discussing in this season and just in, in kind of wider work, right, that, that, that we, is becoming so prominent now is that disaster scholarship is finally really calling to act on the oppressive structures rather than build resilience in quotation marks, yeah, right? Yeah. And sort of reduce vulnerability in quotation mark and blame people who are vulnerable and who are oppressed rather than actually acknowledging that it, 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 it has it has nothing to do with people. It's um, it requires societal change. Mm. And like the other thing that that springs out from these clips is the idea of um, like more empathy and mm. interconnection between between different um identities different groups different communities and just the the potential that's there for caring for each other and for working together to to resist some of the these structures that are really at the really at the the um the drivers of risk creation right yeah absolutely and Every time, you know, we talk about relationship and kind of our, our inter- interconnectivity and interconnectedness. Mm. Um, I keep thinking about the vulnerability episode that um, we had with Darian. Mm. I remember it was a participatory episode as well, a couple of seasons ago. Um, so yeah, if for the audience, if you're interested um, to hear m- more of us ranting about this, then <laughs> you know where to find it. Yeah. But it, it's it's been fantastic, and thank you so much for all the contributors uh, to this episode. Again, it's just so great to see that so many people are willing to share their thoughts and ideas. And also, thank you all so much for your support. 
Okay, so as we wrap up, I just want to mention a few of our upcoming live streams. So first of all, on the 31st of March, we have a live stream which is going to be focusing on prisons and homelessness. Um, so we hope you'll check that out on uh, YouTube or wherever you watch our live streams. Secondly, in April, we're going to have our book group live stream and we're reading Hope Against Hope. And um, if anybody would like to join us in that conversation, just let us know and read the book. That would be really cool if we had um, anybody who hasn't been on a book group conversation with us before that wanted to join. And then in May, we're going to be with JC Gaillard and talking about his book, The Invention of Disaster. Um, and again, like a really incredible book for our field, which is challenging a lot of the norms and previous uh, ways of doing things, so mm. ways of looking, thinking about disaster concepts. So, um, yeah, we, we hope you'll join those live streams wherever you uh, see them, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Twitch. I mean, nobody watches Ooh. on Twitch, but it's, it goes there. <laughs> Um, and so in the meantime, please enjoy the rest of the season. We're going to, uh, be, be featuring, or we're going to release what, how many, four more episodes till the end of the season, three more. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thanks. Thanks for all your support. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Laurie Peak, JC Gaia, Ilan Kalman, Per Becker, Rohit Jigiasen, Catherine Campos, Tilly Hall, Chrisant Lili, Kusamo Y. Doyle, Nimesh Dungana, Panika Aurora, Sarah Kelly, Naomi Gonzalez Bautista, Miguel Angel Trejorangel, and Husna Bolsonari, as well as Jason Von Medin and Miksenia Chmutina on Disasters Reconstructed. <laughs>